Those who joined the Communist Party, I think, at that point, saw themselves involved in a life and death struggle and were doing so on the basis of what they saw as profound injustice that surrounded them. The police were annoyed um, that the presence and even dominance of women in the riots made it more, much more difficult for them to use their batons to subdue the crowds. And so they actually you know, referred to these as having been import importing suffragette tactics and, and making their life much harder. That was, um, I guess, you know, the Depression kind of really pushed things in all directions. So you had a lot of wealthy and middle-class people who were desperate to hang on to the advantages they had. And any kind of working-class fight back just terrified them. On the 19th of September 1917, a crowd that swelled to 10,000 marched on the centre of Melbourne. Men and women smashed up businesses and shop fronts, many of them deliberately targeted. At the centre of this event were activists Jenny Baines, Lizzie Wallace and the militant English suffragette Adela Pankhurst. Roughly 15 years later on a Friday night in the suburb of Brunswick, the artist Noel Cunahan, then 19 years old, was locked in a makeshift cage draped with the banner, We Want Free Speech. He turned to address the growing crowd. Although different circumstances had led both groups to this point, all involved were fighting on behalf of those who were struggling to survive, for human dignity and for the basic requirement to eat. Welcome to Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. For this episode, we're taking another look back at two key struggles and protests which have shaped Melbourne, the 1917 food riots and the 1933 Brunswick free speech movement. And if you enjoy it, you should have a listen to the original Melbourne on Strike episode from our first season. So yeah, so we're just going to jump straight in there. You're up, Lee. Right. Well, when people think of Australia and the First World War, it's tempting to think that the only real conflict of this period was happening overseas. But what was going on for these violent street demonstrations to erupt? And in particular, what had made so many women so very angry? We turn to Dr Judith Smart, Deputy Chair of the History Council of Victoria and adjunct professor of RMIT University, to understand how these demonstrations came about. But first, we've got to set the scene a bit. Well, as Australia's capital, Melbourne was the seat of national as well as state government. OK, so wait. Yes, in case you weren't aware, from May 1901, Melbourne was in fact Australia's first capital city until that status was conferred on Canberra in 1927. But for that crucial period, including during the war, Melbourne was the, the nation's, nation's most vital economic, administrative and political and military powers. Um, were concentrated there. So Melbourne became the focal point for interest groups of all kinds and the place where they mainly gathered to lobby, to meet, to confer and to demonstrate. In 1914, Melbourne had a population just over 600,000, which rose by a third to 800,000 by 1921. For men and women, the biggest source of employment was manufacturing and the city's population, population was, distributed. was distributed largely as you would expect at that time according to class. Um, most working class people lived in generally pretty substandard housing in an arc of low-lying suburbs surrounding the central business district. 
um, gradually growth and better housing started to extend across the flat plains to the north and the west as factories uh, started to be relocated to those bigger premises that are out there. Um, the expanding southeastern suburbs, pretty well like today, were more undulating and park-like and were largely populated by the wealthy and the professional and the middle classes. Um, the first decade of the century, in you know, a period before World War I, the city was slowly recovering from a devastating depression in the 1890s and it was marked by a growing sense of class consciousness. Uh, the trade union movement expanded very quickly, um, especially among the unskilled workers, and the new Victorian Employers Federation also grew quickly. Class antagonism exploded over a number of industrial disputes. And yes, a standard rate of pay for an unskilled worker, the basis of the minimum wage, was introduced by the Federal Arbitration Court, but many worker activists felt it was set at an amount that fell well short of a proper living wage. Even more problematically, wages did not grow and a vast majority of workers came under the jurisdiction of employer-dominated wage boards and they didn't receive the living wage provided for under the federal arbitration system from 1907. Wages, you could say, were at best stagnant. And employers were trying to squeeze more out of workers in most industries well before the war. Okay, but the war. As soon as the empire called, we responded with unbridled enthusiasm, didn't we? Well, historians like Judith have disputed this claim, arguing that Australians had much more mixed feelings about the war. Not that we weren't committed to defeating Germany. It's more that, for anyone reading the papers, the scale of battlefield losses in the first few weeks quickly raised alarm at the tremendous sacrifice being made. People were anxious. Polarisation in Melbourne in the latter part of 1914 and during the war years occurred over the war itself, um, over civil liberties, over religion, over the economy. The question of conscription for this particular war had begun to be debated uh, in the second half of 1915 and had divided the people of Melbourne long before Billy Hughes as Prime Minister uh, announced the first conscription referendum in September of the following year. The new Federal Labor Government in 1914, October 1914, passed the War Precautions Act and it was progressively expanded by regulation. Among many other things, it provided for censorship and internment. Censorship in practice was mostly directed at critics of the war and it produced a hostile reaction from the Labor and the Socialist press and I suppose what you could call smug satisfaction from the conservative organs of opinion. The debate over whether able men should be conscripted into service would rage on and result in two national referendums, the one that Judith mentioned, which was held on October 1916, and another in December 1917, both of which failed. But as far as Judith is concerned, it was, it was the, the economy... economy... ..and the failure to protect working-class living standards that brought all the anger and resentment to a head. And yes, conscription may not have been compulsory, but many had formed the view that dire domestic circumstances and a lack of choices were creating a different kind of conscription, one born out of economic necessity. It was argued that people were signing up so that they and their families could survive at home, even if it meant risking their lives overseas. All right. Next place. Let's do it. Where's number six? Pink flowers. Pink flowers. Little bungalow. For Lee and I, the other story we looked at for this episode was about as local as you could get. Mm. 
It took place in our own neighbourhood of Brunswick. So Lee, Brunswick, it's kind of like the wedding district of uh, Melbourne. There's so many shops. I don't know why. So many, so, so many. many. If you go up Sydney Road and there's also lots of like Middle Eastern places and you have to watch those bicycle riders. So Brunswick's the highest percentage of musicians in Melbourne, apparently. I'd say so. Yeah, there's a lot of them I've around. got like band practice on every single like corner of my street. <laughs> you walk past hearing this garagey music every day. Okay, so Brunswick's a really fun place to live. Uh, we both love it, but it's changed yeah. a lot over the years. And the place next to us was the original farmstead. And that was between the walls, so that's 1920s and 30s. Mm, amazing. And the old girls who used to live here until their house burnt down, who grew up on the farm, said this is where they tethered their horses on this block. Right, right where we're here, here right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this house was built during the war, so it's relatively recent mm -hmm. compared to many. Um, but they could look through the trees to see trams going up Sydney Road. <laughs> This is Mick Coonahan, who Lee and I met at his home in Brunswick. As you might easily guess, Mick had a special relationship to the artist and activist Noel Coonahan. Yes, I'm Michael Coonahan. I'm Noel's older son. And now I'm now almost as old as Noel was when he died. So um, I am the older son, seriously. <laughs> Noel Coonahan's work is well known across the Australian art world painter of considerable um, repute, a, a very well-regarded printmaker and one of the key printmakers in, in Melbourne, um, a very good draftsman, an occasional sculptor, a muralist and so on. He became quite a, a varied artist with a very considerable output from the 40s until he died in 1986. But as a young man, he started making a living as an artist, really as a commercial artist, as a caricaturist and cartoonist, working for the daily press, for uh, the weekly press. He had quite a prolific career during the 1930s, doing drawings of politicians, um, political cartoons, caricatures of football players and trotting drivers and archbishops and all sorts of folk and that was how he made a living during the 30s. Can you describe what Noel looked like? Uh, quite quite a, a slight, not a physically large man. Uh, he's quite dapper and quite elegant uh, but a, a slender type with a long nose and a, a crop of curly black hair. So some of the things he did uh, physically, some of the physical circumstances he put himself in demanded a fair bit of courage from somebody who was not a uh, physically powerful man. I first heard about the incident that became known as the Cage Incident in a history lecture at university where my Australian history teacher, Ian Turner, at, this was at Monash in 1965 or six. Um, gave a lecture about the Depression and used as an example of the, the struggles over free speech the example of the well-known artist Noel Coonahan in his youth appearing in a cage in Sydney Road, Brunswick. So I thought, oh, gosh, that's, 
It's interesting. I might go home and ask him about that. But before we get to the cage, we should give you an idea about what things were like for those out of work. Yeah, I'm Ian McIntyre. I'm a Melbourne-based writer, musician and historian, and my main interests are uh, popular and unpopular culture, <laughs> radical movements and uh, music. All right, so life for people in the 30s, well, Brunswick was a working-class area. A lot of local residents had pretty poor living standards already, and they'd seen them actually drop throughout the 1920s. So even before the Depression, uh, this certainly, you know, people were doing it pretty hard. Steady work was always hard to find because a lot of the work locally in the brickworks and textiles and so forth um, was casual. And uh, the timber workers, tile, pottery and other industries, um, there'd been a series of strikes in the 1920s which essentially had been lost. So wages were already pretty low, employment was already pretty casualised. The other important thing in terms of sort of what was happening locally is that people who were still in work suffered wage cuts of up to 50%. Now obviously there was a, a yet another spike of unemployment after the Wall Street crash um, globally. So official statistics claim that in Australia, close to a quarter of men and about an eighth of women were out of work by 1932. Those figures might not even capture the full extent of unemployment because it was only recorded for those who were part of a union. As for Brunswick... I don't have any uh, strong figures on, on unemployment in Brunswick, but in 1932, so this is two or three years into the Depression, uh, the local mayor claimed that there were 23,000 local people affected by unemployment and that the council were able to help about a third of those. And the main local charity in this area was the Ladies' Benevolent Society. So that gives you a sort of a... The name gives you a sense of, of the kind of class background for so who was providing it. For those struggling, the first port of call was usually family and neighbours. But with so many people out of work, people became desperate enough to turn to charities although there was often a strong sense of shame and indignity associated with accepting assistance. Help was usually provided by way of handing out food, clothing and other essentials, or sometimes providing vouchers. And there was an attitude among some charities, like the Ladies' Benevolent Society, that help should only be afforded to the so-called deserving poor. Old beliefs still persisted that if people were poor, it may well be their own fault because they were lazy or immoral, and consequently, many were subject to often invasive and patronising interviews by charity workers. Councils were also able to offer non-ongoing casual work to a small minority. But the unemployed were beginning to organise. By 1931, the Central Trades Council had formed, a relatively moderate group aligned with Trades Hall and the Labour Party. However, another group with strong ties to the Communist Party, the Unemployed Workers Movement, had also formed, and that year had attracted about 7,000 members across Victoria. What you have is a young movement, but with a considerable body of thought behind it, in the sense that there's half a century plus of Marxist theorising, which appears to explain the dynamics of capitalist societies, how they emerge, what they need to do to reproduce themselves and what might lead to their demise, 
all these ideas are brought together in a relatively comprehensible and lucid fashion. That seemed to present a picture of the problem and a series of theses about how, how these problems might be politically resolved. So at the time when Noel was, uh, and Noel left, high, left school early, when he was working really as a teenager, um, he encountered both the mass unemployment and the privation that was in, involved with the Great Depression in the beginning of the 1930s. And he, in that context, he encountered both art and communism. And the two tended to be um, companions for the rest of his life and career. organisation among women in the decade before World War I would, I would have to say, also in part at least reflected class differences. We're back with Judith Smart on the question of how women's groups organised themselves politically leading up to and during the war. By 1902, white women in Australia had the vote in federal elections and could stand for parliament. Three major women's groups had emerged. You had the National Council of Women, an umbrella organisation representing 50 women's groups of all kinds, the overtly feminist Women's Political Association, which was founded by the suffragette Vita Goldstein, and the Women's National League, a conservative anti-socialist group affiliated with the Employers' Federation, which had membership rates that outstripped all of the others combined. What all women's organisations across the political spectrum shared was a commitment to what historians now call maternal feminism. And it can be summed up as a kind of public or civic motherhood, that is, women were mothers to the state and to the nation. During the war, they divided over whether good, responsible mothers should support or oppose the war, and in particular whether they should support or oppose conscription of their sons for overseas service. The National Council of Women and the Australian Women's National League were pro-conscription and loyalists almost from the word go. Early on, the Australian Women's National League may have seemed to tolerate pacifist leanings in its member groups, but showed its true colours in 1915 when the Council refused to accept the, the anti-war anti activist, activist Adela Pankhurst as the Women's Political Association delegate. And indeed, um, they expelled her. They believed that women should be proud to be the mothers of soldiers. And they engaged in addressing public meetings, uh, many consisting of women only, and in addressing factory girls at their places of work to tell them what they should be doing as future mothers of the race, uh, as well as middle-class women at loyalist gatherings. On the other end of the spectrum, you saw the formation of the Women's Peace Army in 1915 and then the United Women's No Conscription Committee in 1916, which included members like the Australian suffragette and feminist Vita Goldstein. They went door to door, arranged meetings and rallies, handed out pamphlets and spoke publicly on platforms at the bank of the Yarra River near the city centre, something which women in Victoria had never really done before. Their most publicised achievement was the Women's No Conscription Demonstration and Procession, um, which took place in the city um, 
On the 21st of October 1916, something like four to 6,000 women uh, marching from the Guildhall in Swanson Street, um, now Story Hall, um, to, down to the Yarra Bank where the crowd had swelled to about 80,000. Many of the women marching or converging on the bank of Melbourne's Yarra River were dressed in purple, white and red, the colours of the English Suffragette League, whom at this time still hadn't got the vote. This practice was adopted by the Women's Political Association after Vita Goldstein had returned from London. Also part of the parade were several tableaus, which were a kind of picture or model depicting various scenes. But the procession wasn't to go unchallenged. Returned soldiers um, interrupted it, disrupted some of the, uh, the tableaus, and they also attacked some of the women themselves. One woman actually had a piece of her finger bitten off. But they were repelled by uh, male protective unionists who were sort of guarding the women as they walked down the street and um, shooed them away. But it wasn't just middle-class women involved in anti-conscription activities. Another form of anti-conscription activism came from ordinary working-class women, though. They responded to the refusal of the Melbourne City Council and a whole lot of other um, local councils to hire their halls out to antis. And what they did was they instead disrupted the pro-conscription meetings that were allowed in those halls. So they seem to be saying, if you're not going to let Labor spokesmen and women, representatives of the working class, speak to us in our suburbs and our streets, then we're not going to let you be heard. So they used the count-out, stomping, prolonged cheering, chanting and booing, cock-crowing, interjection, invasion of the platform and loud renditions of popular songs. Uh, my favourite, I think, was, was one at Fitzroy where um, the women refused to go home, um, even when the lights were turned out, and sang, we won't go home till morning, and swung all of the policemen into dance with them. Aside from division over the war itself, there were other tipping factors adding to the rising political and class tensions. Drought, uh, interruption to trade, shortages of food, um, all produced price rises. And by 1917, um, the cost of food and groceries had risen, getting on for 30, 30%. The poverty, the hunger and the anger was exacerbated by the fact that there were large quantities of wheat and meat in storage that could not be shipped to soldiers in Europe because there was no shipping available. The Commonwealth Government had entered into agreements with the Imperial authorities in London to purchase the whole refrigerated beef and mutton supply available for export for the duration of the war. Butter and cheese were also included, and by late 1916, the whole wheat crop as well. But when shipping shortages and distance prevented the accumulated foodstuffs from being transported, and storage facilities, uh, of course, became inadequate, the government made no move to negotiate the release of the food locally. Brits, by this stage, were getting the food and supplies they needed from the Americas, which were much easier to access with shipping than the Australian, than Australia and New Zealand. So the, the wheat here rotted in railway sidings, as being eaten by mice, and farmers were forced to limit the number of the beasts that they could send for slaughter to supply the local market. Hence the shortages and the high prices. In response in March 1917, the National Council of Women took up the cause of thrift and they decided to set up a thrift campaign council and to organise Thrift Week in June. They argued 
As economy was essential to winning the war, so women must make further sacrifices in pleasure and comforts and in every detail of life. But rather than focusing on what luxuries uh, wealthy women could give up, they, they gave advice to working class women that um, substitution of macaroni for meat might be a good patriotic gesture that they could make if they were on a meagre income. Labor movement women were outraged and urged vigorous protest, arguing that winning the war did not mean starving the people. But the cost of living campaign was soon overtaken by ordinary women and more radical elements who occupied the streets in the coming months. Adela Pankhurst, who I've mentioned before, she's formerly a leader of the Women's Political Association and now a Victorian Socialist Party activist. And she, of course, was a member of the famous Pankhurst family in England who had started the Women's Social and Political Union, known as the Suffragettes. And she'd been booted out by her mother because she was a bit too radical, so she came to Australia. Adela, um, in, on August the 15th, began the, the series of demonstrations and marches on federal parliament, leading large numbers of women to demand release of food in storage, as well as punishment of exploiters. Defying police warnings to stop speaking, Adela was torn from her protective bodyguard of friends and arrested. Amid what was described by newspapers as scenes of wild excitement and a hooting, hysterical crowd of women, Pankhurst was conveyed to the Little Burke Street Watch House. A few days later, Pankhurst was again arrested and charged with offensive behaviour, along with the Women's Peace Army campaigner Jenny Baines, longtime socialist Lizzie Wallace and three male supporters. The food riots continued almost daily throughout August and into September. At a meeting on the 3rd of September, Pankhurst claimed that the high prices caused the recent demonstrations. Parliament will do nothing and it is left to ourselves. We have only one course open and that is to demonstrate. I am not afraid to fight, even if it does come to the destruction of property. Later that same evening, a crowd marched on Parliament House and windows were smashed in the city streets. This destruction was only to escalate on the evening of the 19th of September at the event known as the Monster Rally. It's the um, 30th of March, 1976, isn't it? And I'm talking to Noel Cunahan, C-O-U-N-I-H-A-N, and we're at his home. Uh, when were you born, Noel? Wendy Lowenstein, a pioneer in recording oral history interviews, recorded her Weevils in the Flowers series in the latter part of the 1970s. Amongst those she spoke to was Noel Cunahan. In it, he describes his own experiences of struggling in the Depression. Right about being unemployed. I mean, now, how, did you come out of school to unemployment? No, I was in a lower middle class household where my father was a commercial traveller who, whose wages were subject to all the severe cuts under the previous plan, but he never actually lost his job. Same he was still in work here. And, uh, but we were at complete and total loggerheads uh, politically and over my general dissident and rebel outlook uh, from the age of uh, 17, 16 and 17 on. I had been working in a warehouse, the same place that employed him as a salesman. I was working and 
I got the sack there again because they reckoned that I was a, a, a nuisance and, uh, you know, I was involving uh, a, a number of the other junior warehouse employees politically. I got two of them to join the Young Communist League and we had a bit of a deputation over overtime and bad pub. Mm. So they decided that I would be much better off learning art or doing something. Uh, that my interests and theirs lay in different directions and so I got the sack. Now this of course humiliated my father because he worked for the same firm and uh, he even burnt my, uh, a lot of my books and magazines uh, like New Masses and all sorts of things which were very precious at the time and uh, a lot of my theoretical uh, books and art books he burnt in one lot. And so I, I, um, I left home uh, in uh, April 1932. When you were about 18? Uh, yes. Noel's penchant for rebellion seems to have emerged at a young age. His schooling years were somewhat unconventional. He attended the St Paul's Choir School, where the boys were required to sing at St Paul's Cathedral, located in the city centre, as well as attend academic classes. Noel's son, Mick Coonahan, explains... So it was a very unusual form of schooling. Uh, Noel grew to hate it, he really... Although he very much enjoyed the music, but he didn't like the institutional circumstances of the school. He thought it was very repressive and very narrow in its educational focus. His account is that he screamed himself hoarse at the football to break his voice so that he became too... Uh, his voice was too erratic an instrument to be used in the St Paul's Cathedral Choir. He was, I have to add, uh, because this is very much an important part of his persona and also part of his lifelong support for the underdog, a South Melbourne supporter, aka the Sydney Swans these days, but uh, during the course of Noel's life, a very unsuccessful football team. For a period in 1931, while he was unemployed and had left home, Noel had to make do sleeping on a bench at the premises of the Workers' Art Club, a cultural organisation he had helped found. And then on the floor of the Communist Party headquarters, often alongside several other party members. Although Noel was eventually to find his feet again. The move into the Communist Party pushed him in a certain direction because it involved, then became involved with an organised political movement. But the circumstances under which he was living in that period were very much those of, you know, a young single man living in bohemian circumstances, basically in shared accommodation in the city that is in the heart of the city, in Little Collins Street and, you know, Flinders Lane and so on. Um, and that's where they, you know, are drinking and partying and um, trying to scrape a few bob together and also arguing politics. But the question of housing had made a huge impression on young Noel. What the landlords would do often, the people were thrown out unexpectedly. The police would arrive uh, suddenly and they would be ordered out if they didn't move. They, everything, the police simply carted everything out of the house and dumped it in the back lane. Noel had received notice that a family, the Smiths, were being evicted. But they had arrived too late. I can't remember they burst into tears, but 
it was so shocking that um, that was really what one felt like doing. Uh, they're, you know, very poor people. It's bad enough with when you go into their homes, the simple poor possessions. But when it's out in the street, it looks terrible. You know, the mattresses, the rickety tables, the chairs, the few odd bits and pieces that got together. And there was mum nursing a baby on her you know, sitting on a table or a mattress or something, out in the back lane with these few possessions. And one child was in the children's hospital with rickets. Uh, and uh, there were the two, the two very, very young ones, one not much more, not much beyond being at the breast. In Victoria, between 1930 and 1933, there were about 1,100 warrants issued and about 5,000 evictions, although many more people, knowing that they couldn't make the repayments, simply took off before a court order was issued. Although many of the unemployed and those facing evictions were prepared to fight back. News would come to the unemployed that uh, a certain family had received notice they're going to be turfed out. So a demonstration would be called. Uh, the, the practice was that members of the unemployed got on a, on a boat and with a bell or a can, they would ride through the areas rattling the can, announcing the fact that to turn up to prevent the eviction of a family at such and such a street. Large numbers of people would show up, often in the hundreds. Uh, it was in the air. And uh, when these messengers went around making their noises, it was understood that a family was going to be tossed out onto the street. The demonstrations would typically take place at the real estate agent's office. As Noel explained, the estate agent would be forced to receive a deputation who would put to him that with hundreds of demonstrators hanging about outside, it was very much in his interest to cooperate and to contact and instruct the landlord to remove the eviction order and allow the family to stay in the property. On occasion, the unemployed would trash a property as a kind of extreme dissuasive technique and perhaps to exert a bit of sweet, sweet revenge. That was one method. Where there was the double cross. Sometimes people got a reprieve, but then when, you know, uh, the forces dispersed and a day or two passed, suddenly up came the police and out they went. Now, a lot of those houses were very rickety. So all it was necessary to do, uh, and this was done uh, uh, in desperation, really, because no ordinary human argument had any effect on... Uh, landlords who were very rapacious and uh, so in the early hours of the morning we would turn up we only needed a couple of big ropes and you knock the front window and the door down and you pass the rope through the front window and around out again through the door and if a few men gave a heave and down come the front wall. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done that? Yes, sure, took part in that in South Melbourne. Ian McIntyre read to us from an account by the Age newspaper of how the crowd dealt with the eviction of a Gallipoli war veterans' house in Brunswick in 1931. Uh, the front fence was uprooted and one of the main supports was thrown through the front window. Every window in the little house was smashed. The gas meter was torn bodily from the wall and the bath overturned and the mantelpieces pulled down from the walls. 
In places, the ceiling was badly damaged and holes were made in the flooring of several of the rooms. Doors were pulled from their hinges and thrown onto the floor amid the general wreckage. The taps were turned on with the result that the garden and the yard were flooded. So again, that was an um, example where trashing the property would have not just been done to kind of punish the landlord, but also to kind of warn other landlords. So then... Um, so the taps on, who does that in... Um... What's the film? Home Alone? The Wet Bandits? <laughs> the Wet Bandits. The, yeah, the Wet Bandits. <laughs> when considering the pushback against evictions and the actions of the unemployed workers, it's important to bear in mind which side traditional power structures had decided to back. But I think also evictions kind of really illustrated the inequalities in the system, that the police and the courts were acting to sort of uphold the ability of landlords to make profit rather than the ability of poor people to have shelter. I guess, you know, the Depression kind of really pushed things in all directions. So you had a lot of wealthy and middle-class people who were desperate to hang on to the advantages they had, and any kind of working-class fight-back just terrified them. So just as happened in Germany and Italy and Britain and elsewhere, some of these people decided that an authoritarian solution was needed to uphold um, traditional power uh, in a time of crisis. So you had a whole lot of far-right groups uh, and so-called secret armies formed around Australia. So the big thing in Victoria was that the police force was uh, headed up, uh, the commissioner was a guy called General Blaney, and he was also the leader of a group known as the White Army. Um, so on the one hand, he was secretly heading up this far-right organisation. On the other hand, he's the guy who's in charge of the police. So he was determined to destroy communists and he used the political squad, which I guess these days is known as Special Branch, um, to spy on activists but also to violently break up street meetings and protests. So hundreds of um, activists were arrested on charges like vagrancy and resisting arrest. And at one point, the unemployed workers' movement um, boasted it had enough members locked up in Pentridge Jail to form a branch there. It was this sense of repressive shutdown of any kind of protest or dissent that would lead Noel Coonahan to make a stand in Brunswick. Someone had to be allowed to speak. And the unemployed workers' union had devised a way to do it. The food riots, which had been going on all through August and early September, reached a peak on the night of the 19th of September when a torchlight procession was attended by as many as 10,000 people. Um, it began at the Yarra Bank, the traditional speaking spot for radicals in Melbourne, and the initial crowd of about 2,000 then moved along the riverside uh, to Prince's Bridge, turned up Flinders Street and continued to the top end of the city at Spring Street, and thousands more joined in as they went. Um, two women were carrying the red flag at the head of the procession and they were, of course, quickly arrested. And it was not long before the protest turned into a melee. Road metal, um, which the, the walkers had, the protesters had picked up en route, uh, was hurled at police and there were some minor injuries. But after an hour and a half, um, the crowd was broken up by baton-wielding constables. Um, some sections then broke away and escaped down different streets into the city centre. 
Due to coal shortages, the city's lamps had to be put out, and under the resulting cover of darkness, the demonstrators began smashing shop and office front windows. Unable to either see what was happening or to predict the demonstrators' next moves, the police were on the defensive. Desperate calls to the suburban stations brought all available men to the city area, and by 10pm there were two officers, 10 sub-officers, 22 mounted and 130 foot constables on duty to try and control the crowd. About £5,000 worth of damage was sustained, and it appears that many businesses were deliberately targeted, specifically those selling luxury goods or who had supported actions against unions and striking workers such as hiring non-union workers to produce black goods. Window smashing had taken place before the 19th of September and it was to happen again the following Monday in the eastern inner suburb of Richmond. The Riot Act was eventually invoked and over 400 special constables were enrolled from citizen volunteers, black labour again, uh, to bring order back to the streets. Adela Pankhurst was arrested on a number of occasions and eventually she spent nearly two months of her four-month sentence in Pentridge Jail before being released on petition of other women leaders on the 18th of January 1918. And while in prison, and especially over the Christmas period, she was regularly serenaded uh, by local women from the Coburg and Brunswick area who aimed to keep up her flagging spirits. A few years earlier, Adela's mother Amelia Pankhurst had been serenaded by a group of women singing outside and with a cornet while serving time in London's Holloway prison. Around 300 militant suffragettes were jailed at Holloway for arson, window smashing and other acts of sabotage. The demonstrations as a whole, um, as well as that of the 19th of September in particular, included organised claims to political and economic power, including powerful women. Some police claimed that the leaders, uh, Adela Pankhurst and Jenny Baines, had deliberately imported suffragette tactics into the demonstrations, and that may well be true. Both were members and experienced leaders of protests for the, uh, the Women's Social and Political Union in England. Both, in other words, were suffragettes. Um, both had gone to jail at various periods, and um, Jenny Baines in particular had gone on hunger strike a number of times. Uh, both of them arrived in Melbourne in 1914 and they immediately joined the Women's Political Association. It's probable that they had met Vina Goldstein when she was in London in 1911. The police were annoyed um, that the presence and even dominance of women in the riots made it more, much more difficult for them to use their batons to subdue the crowds. And so they actually you know, referred to these as having been importing, importing suffragette tactics and, and making their life much harder. Um, window smashing was, of course, a common um, women's social and political union um, tactic in London. And there, the women commonly carried little reticules that were filled with stones and attached by ribbons to their wrists. And with a quick practice flick of the wrist, they could break windows as they walked along. And I interviewed, at some stage or other, I interviewed um, Jenny Baines's great-grandson, I think he was, um, and he, he had kept a whole lot of this memorabilia. Uh, including a little sort of reticule. It was a fairly small bag, so it wouldn't have held much, but I imagine with that sort of flick of the wrist, you could, you know, wield a fair bit of power. They refused to pay fines, um, like the suffragettes did in England, uh, and instead went to prison um, and, you know, just put up with being in prison until they could be released. Uh, the hunger strike was also, of course, um, a suffragette tactic, and... 
They didn't use it in 1917, but Jenny Baines did use it when she was arrested for flying the red flag in 1919. So I think the suffragettes were actually an important precedent and an important um, learning experience for um, organising these demonstrations. Sydney Road is just still really ugly. Like no matter how much <laughs> development goes on, it's just this kind of ugly, bumpy street that's terrifying to ride your bike down because of all the potholes. Yeah. Our sound engineer Christian, Ian and I, took a drive down the main thoroughfare in this part of Brunswick to Phoenix Street, where the cage incident actually occurred. At the time when we visited, a new section of the Woolworth supermarket complex was being renovated. It's been the site for a supermarket for a fair while now. And in fact, on that day, Noel Cunahan remembered that from his vantage point, he could see hundreds of shoppers crammed inside. Yeah, he's probably good. Put my keys in the pocket. How's the... Sweet. Sweet. Nowadays, Phoenix Street is a cul-de-sac cut off by the upfield train line. By day, it's populated by car, foot and bike traffic heading to the nearby gym at Brunswick Bars or the local station. And on a Friday night, by those headed to pubs, eateries or live music venues like Bombay Rock on the corner. In the 1930s, though, Phoenix Street was a popular spot for local demonstrations. The police, in cahoots with local councils, had shut down demonstrations across much of the city using largely trumped-up charges of obstruction. By contrast, attempts at civil action hadn't entirely been stamped out under the left-leaning Brunswick Local Council, although the powers that be were onto it. Yeah, so they started arresting people here. Initially, it was mainly kind of the unemployed militants, but it became a really kind of key free speech issue in Melbourne. So basically things got ramped up into a full-scale civil disobedience campaign. And... By February 1933, there'd been scores of orators um, arrested and this started to include people like uh, leading unionists and Labor Party politicians. So because of that, because there were these kind of more high-profile people starting to get arrested, uh, because there were more and more people turning out every Friday night to see what was happening, I mean, you know, life was pretty quiet back then. You can imagine also when period when no one's got much money you know, this is a bit of excitement um, so the government sort of um, the state government which was a conservative government agreed to amend traffic legislation to properly define obstruction and they also quietly said to the police you know you need to back off but police commissioner blamey um, absolutely hated communists and he wasn't going to back off so he came up with the solution which was that the police should deliberately drive cars up and down the street to cre actually create obstruction so people could be arrested that way. As Noel himself explained. The police were putting very heavy pressure on unemployed organisations and so on. And one of the forms of pressure was that they began to stop the unemployed from holding these meetings in Phoenix Street on the grounds that they were disturbing the traffic. So it was just straight out repression. But uh, the unemployed 
decided they weren't going to take this, and if it was going to be a matter of disrupting the traffic, well then they would. They, so they decided to take the fight into the main shopping area, into Sydney Road. The political or riot squad, the group of police employed on the ground to deal with the demonstrators, were considered by many unemployed workers to be particularly heavy-handed, chosen specifically for their ability to street fight. Here's Mick Coonahan. The police and the police deserve an extra special mention here because they were seriously heavy-duty thugs and were notorious around the city as such. Um, many of them were veterans of the push wars of the 1920s. Police who were, became expert at dealing with those pushes, Fitzroy boys and Collingwood boys and so on, um, segued naturally, as it were, into the class war involved during the Depression and became specialist attack squads beating up the unemployed and their representatives. Incidentally, if you want to learn more about those gangs known as pushers, you should listen to our upcoming episode, You Bloody Kids. But anyway. The Communist Party basically cooked up a stunt, and the stunt involved putting one speaker inside a protected space, in this case an old lift shaft that was a.k.a. the cage, which was bolted to the back of a horse-drawn lorry. The lorry would be taken into Sydney Road and then it, it was chained to a telephone pole in Sydney Road, more or less outside the old post office, which is now Penny Black, my venue. And the point was, at this stage, so many people had been arrested, there were so many in jail at the time, and some had been arrested twice, that they wanted, they had to find somebody uh, who would be able to, to speak for some period to really take advantage of it. I'd been very uh, prominent uh, a little earlier uh, in both the unemployed and the anti-war, the uh, nascent anti-war movement, and I was, had had some considerable experience as a speaker. So I was asked, would I uh, accept the role uh, of being the speaker in the cage? And I, I felt the issue was so important that uh, it had to be done. On Friday 19th of May 1933, Noel arrived in the early evening and, in a nearby side street, bolted himself inside the cage. It was still possible to see outside because it was made of steel mesh, but a hessian sack was put over the lift, come cage, so that it would remain undetected until the very last minute. Once the contraption was let out, bolted to the pole and the horse let loose, the hessian was removed, providing Noel with his window of opportunity to speak. But that was only part of the plan. With the enormous police presence expected, it was decided that someone would need to act as a decoy. A wharfie from Port Melbourne, Noel's friend named Shorty Patello, had put up his hand for the job. Shorty got on the tram and started to speak, and uh, as we expected, the uh, police concentrated on him and drove alongside, and the horses uh, drove alongside, demanding that the tram driver stop. But he was a good trade union man, and he wouldn't stop before he came to a compulsory stop. 
Shorty Patello quickly realised that if he was going to have any chance of escaping, he would have to jump off the moving tram before it stopped, which he did, before running through the crowd and up a side street. But Shorty was quickly cornered by the police. He was knocked down. While he was on the ground, uh, they must have been so furious at the, at the, you know, the way they'd been humiliated. They were so furious that in the most irresponsible way, they, one of them pulled a gun and shot him. And, and it was so unnecessary. But in the meantime, Noel had his chance. Using an old gramophone horn to amplify his voice, he spoke of the plight of the unemployed, but also of wider issues like the rising tide of fascism and the threat of war in Europe. The police were busy scrambling, trying to stop him. Now, apparently the cops were trying to, you know, get this steel mesh lift off the back, but they couldn't get into the lift and they couldn't get it off the back. And the crowd, um, which sort of built up to thousands of people, uh, was sort of laughing and taking the mickey. And at one point, um, they took to counting out the police boxing style, so sort of a 10, 9 and knockout kind of thing. <laughs> so apparently Noel spoke for, you know, a reasonable while. But uh, having made his point uh, and also, I guess, getting worried because the police brought out a battering ram and, and were trying to smash their way in, he was pretty worried he was going to get pretty badly injured, uh, he eventually surrendered. As Noel tells it, while the rest of the police didn't care if he got hurt by the six cops charging towards him in the cage with the battering ram, an elderly policeman convinced the others that he would go quietly. The old copper bent the newly forged hole and, cutting his hands in the process, got Noel out and away before the rest of the police could release their rage on him. But with no police paddy wagon to be found, together they got on a tram, from which Noel was taken in charge at the local station. He would spend time on remand at Pentridge Jail before being released on bail to await trial. Uh, the old policeman who arrested me turned up and asked to be allowed to address the court. And he spoke in my defence. And uh, he said that I had been, a, a, you know, a, a model a prisoner in the, under arrest in the circumstances, in very difficult circumstances, that he had talked to me and questioned me and that he, uh, I'd explained uh, the nature of the whole situation. And uh, he said that I was a, 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 high, a young man of, with high principles and uh, a young man of character. But to no avail. The magistrate stated that as he appeared to be well-educated, he ought to know better, and he received a maximum sentence of two months jail. Fortunately for Noel, however, he had a savvy legal defence team from the firm Morris Blackburn. They appealed the decision and successfully argued that due to a mistake by the first magistrate and the police with respect to proper legal processes, in the interests of natural justice, the conviction should be quashed. This was not the outcome Noel had anticipated. And uh, so I sat in the court. Uh, I remember I had my inside of my tie and all available things stuffed with tobacco to, uh, uh, to take out to Pentridge, to try and smuggle into Pentridge. As I was quite convinced, you see, that I was going in to do the, uh, to do the two months. Shorty Patello, however, was not so lucky and was hit with a fine of £23, along with a month's stint in Pentridge jail. Though he was treated in hospital, doctors thought, due to its proximity to important nerves, it was too risky to remove the bullet from where it had entered his leg. It would remain there for the rest of his life. 
So what did each struggle actually achieve? We asked Judith what impact the 1916 food riots had on subsequent government actions. (laughs) Almost none, in fact. (laughs) Price rises continued throughout the war and there was very little change um, by the end of 1918 and workers got more and more disillusioned and less and less inclined to to participate in, in recruitment. Um, the the Governor-General held a recruitment... uh... Judith explained that nevertheless, the campaign probably did convince a new cohort of leaders of a group called the Housewives Association to use different tactics from those who had initially advocated thrift in helping working-class women manage the cost-of-living challenges brought on by the war. This included establishing food cooperatives where discounts were provided to the members. Membership numbers swelled and later the group would become more involved in broader activism to improve the civil and political status of women, including the campaigning in the 1920s to allow women to stand for the Victorian Parliament. But change can occur in the other direction as well, as was the case with Adela Pankhurst. Um, She married Tom Walsh at the Siemens Union uh, in the midst of the protests on the 30th of September 1917. And she moved to Sydney uh, with him in 1918, where both of them became foundation members of the Communist Party. They left the Communist Party uh, in the mid-1920s under threat of deportation. And it's probably quite a long story there in terms of um, Walsh's gradual disillusionment with um, the way that demonstrations and strikes were being conducted. Um, But increasingly, uh, both of them rejected industrial action and moved further to the right. Um, At this stage, uh, Adela also, I suppose, predictably had a rapprochement with her mother, Emmeline, who had cast her off during the war years and written to Billy Hughes saying that she was ashamed of her daughter. But now they um, started corresponding with one another again. Uh, They never saw each other again, um, but they started corresponding at least and talking to one another. Um, Adela then went on to found the anti-communist Australian Women's Guild of Empire in 1928 agitating against strikes and in favour of cooperation with employers. So she'd done a sort of full turn uh, within 10 years. Um, She became increasingly pro-Japanese in the 1930s and she flirted with the proto-fascist Australia First movement and was interned in March of 1842 after the bombing of Pearl Harbour. She was released a few months later um, because Tom, her husband, was dying and he died, in fact, in 1943. And so she went into retirement after that. She withdrew from public life. And um, and just to complete the full circle of her life, she converted to Roman Catholicism. (laughs) (laughs) Turning to the free speech campaign, some have credited the Brunswick Cage incident as being a turning point in the movement. While there's no doubt that the affair frustrated and embarrassed Police Commissioner Blamey and his supporters, legislation had already been introduced in Parliament in March prior to the Cage incident that more clearly defined the conditions under which people could speak publicly. But even with its subsequent passage in August, the police would use other laws to harass people at meetings and marches across the city. But as for Brunswick, one afternoon not long after Noel's speech, a plainclothes police officer had a quiet word to a group of activists. The police would no longer bother them in Phoenix Street. As for Noel, the events of this period influenced much of his art of the 1940s. He tended to use images drawn from uh, the Depression as a way of putting his politics and his art together into, into quite striking images, and many of those paintings became 
became very well known, have been endlessly reproduced, but they're not really typical of his work as it progressed subsequently. He became a very accomplished portrait painter, for instance, and there are a large number of portraits um, that he produced, particularly in the 50s and 60s, and really that was the main source of income. During the Cold War, he no longer had uh, employment from the Daily Press. Mr Murdoch Sr. was not uh, a great fan of Noel. But pretty well, he was blacklisted from, from the early 50s. The only work he got was with a few old pals in editorial positions in newspapers and magazines who printed some of his work under pseudonyms but he couldn't use his own name. So I think that was very difficult and it, of course it put an enormous pressure on the family and meant that my mother basically was the breadwinner for about 20 years. And it wasn't really until the 1970s that Noel actually started making serious income from his work. It was pretty weird, you know, having a, having a father actually who didn't go to work. I mean, my kids found that slightly odd. An artist? What does an artist do? Crowned the world's most livable city seven times over, today Melbourne boasts enviable living standards, which far surpass those of the 1910s and 30s. For some, it may be hard to imagine widespread shortages and mass campaigns on such basic issues as the right to sustenance, shelter and human dignity. Then again, with the gap between the rich and the poor only widening and a 12% recent jump in homelessness in Australia, perhaps this isn't such a remote possibility. The numbers of people who are living in dire poverty aren't as high as they were in the 1930s, um, but there are very significant amounts of poverty, and when people are suffering that, it's still treated as an, as an individual issue. I think what the experience of the 30s tells us is that uh, when you have no power within the system, you have to draw your power from working with other people who are in the same sort of situation as yourself. Basically, you need to get in the face of the people who do have the power and you have to use direct action and creativity to force those in power to listen and to surrender some of their power. Um, so, you know, as the cliche goes, if you don't fight, you lose. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Carly Godden, with editing and production support by Lee Hooper. Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien, who also provided production support. Our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. You can find the full list of music credits on our website. We'd also like to offer our special thanks to Marty Lowenstein, daughter of pioneer oral historian Wendy Lowenstein, for giving us permission to use Wendy's recorded interview with Noel Coonahan. Ian McIntyre is the author of many books, his latest being Sticking It to the Man, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction, 1950-1980, and On the Fly, Hobo Literature and Songs. Both are available in PM Press. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better... Leave a review to help spread the word. Season two of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body, and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria.